So we continue our examination, or maybe I should say we finish our examination of the 11th chapter of the Confession, the subject of justification, which we've been working on now for a couple of weeks. Uh, as I said, this is, a, this is a doctrine that is central to the Christian faith. It is central to the Reformation. Uh, it is central to uh, what it means to know the gospel correctly. Uh, the doctrine of justification is not just some theoretical idea that we can toss about, uh, some sort of doctrine that we can either know or not know. Uh, we would contend that the doctrine of justification is at the very heart of the gospel. If you don't get this doctrine right, you will lose the rest of the gospel. Now, you could hear me say that in virtually any doctrine that I preach, but this one I think is is sort of catapulted to a very special place given the fact that the entirety of the Reformation that broke out in the 16th and 17th century was centered around this topic, centered around this doctrine. Uh, What does it mean to stand just before a holy God? How is a man right in the sight of God? This is even a question that Job is asking, as you can see in that book. How does a man find himself right with a holy God? And, of course, the doctrine of justification, the biblical concept of justification, uh, is the answer to that question. God justifies the ungodly out of his own grace and mercy, for his own purposes. He declares righteous those that he effectually calls to himself. He makes them righteous in his sight uh, because he has purpose to do so as a part of his eternal decree. So the doctrine of election is the idea that those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, regeneration, have been called by an effectual call to faith and repentance And those things combined, which we call conversion, lead to God declaring the man to be righteous in his sight. Or, to say it as I've said it a number of times to help understand it a little better, it is the necessary change of state that occurs in the sinner which allows the sinner now to come into the presence of a holy God. Our problem as human beings isn't our behavior. Our problem as human beings is who we are, what we are in Adam, having fallen, in him, being born into this world, bearing his guilt and his pollution. Uh, We stand guilty. We stand condemned already, irrespective of what we do. Our behavior simply flows out of the reality of what we are. We demonstrate that we're sinners as soon as we get the first chance to do so. And so our problem is not our behavior. Our problem is our state. Our problem is what we are before a living God. And in order for the unholiness of man to come into the holiness of God, the presence of the holiness of God, there needs to be a change of state. There needs to be a change of what we are. Not what we do, but what we are. And that's what justification is. It is a declaration by God, a forensic, a legal, a purposeful declaration by God that all of what is necessary for us to be holy is found in Christ and imputed to us such that we can now be seen by God as righteous in his sight. This is exactly what Luther was dealing with and why it's the central proposition of the Reformation. Luther was a man who struggled with all the things that he did and could never find a change of state, and he knew it. And so he reads Romans 1 and discovers, wait a minute, there is a righteousness and that righteousness is not from me, that righteousness is from God. And that changed him and obviously recaptured the essence of the Pauline gospel that we have in the New Testament. 
And so justification is a key doctrine that we really should know, teach to our children, our grandchildren, because it is the essence of the gospel. How is a man right with God? And the answer is by the express declaration of God through Jesus Christ. Now, it's that second part that's also important. It is accomplished through the work of Christ. Christ himself accomplishes this righteousness, both in his active and passive obedience to the commands of his Father. He's actively obedient, and he comes and lives the perfect human life under the very law that he himself had established for humans to keep. He keeps it perfectly from the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, and this becomes an active righteousness, which God can impute to the sinner. But he also is obedient to the Father passively and giving himself over to the wickedness of a cross, giving himself over to the wickedness of men to be crucified, God placing the unrighteousness of the sinner on him. And this uh, great transaction, uh, imputing righteousness to us and imputing our unrighteousness to Christ, is the basis upon which this justification can be accomplished. This is why it can be said in Scripture that God is both just and the justifier. He can be just in the sense that the, the obvious guilt of the sinner can be satisfied before him and at the same time can also be merciful, the justifier, in giving unto us life. He can do this through his Son. And so this is, this is a doctrine, as, as, as you can see, that is uh, pregnant with import in the Christian faith. It's imperative that we understand it. It's imperative that we recognize that this is the very foundation and heart of the gospel. And I can prove that to you by taking you to Romans chapter 3 and 4. Romans 1 and 2 deals with the issue of the human condition, the reality that we we are sinners, no matter whether you're a a Jew or a Gentile, a, a moralist or a religionist, it doesn't matter. We are all condemned. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. But then as Paul turns in the second half of chapter 3, he turns to the doctrine of justification, that the righteousness of God comes by the declared justification of God. And then in chapter 4, Paul gives us the great example of Abraham as the, as the proof text, if you will, of this reality. And so it's at the very heart of the gospel. If you take Romans 1, uh, 1 to 11 as a great theological treatise on the gospel, you have... Uh, the doctrine of justification as its heartbeat in the center. And the way to understand this book is to see that doctrine. So the confession writers uh, dedicate an entire chapter to this doctrine because it is uh, essential to what it means uh, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, we were looking last week at the end of our class at paragraph 4, um, and I've started into it, and I did say a few things about it, but I'd like to pick it up again and continue the thought when it reads, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, okay, all of the elect being the elect of all time. Okay, remember, God's doctrine of election, his decree of election doesn't begin at the New Testament, doesn't begin at Pentecost, it begins at the Garden, it begins when the fall occurs, That's when an elect people are now being redeemed. Now, of course, you're right. The doctrine of election precedes human history in time and space. I understand that. But in terms of our reality, it is at the beginning of time when the elect are now to be justified in time and space. And so God did from all eternity decree to justify all of the elect. And Christ did, in the fullness of time, 
die for their sins, and rise again for their justification. So the, the decree of God intended for our justification to be based on the work of Christ. Okay, now I've already said that, but that needs to be repeated. But notice this last line. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. So the doctrine of justification, as I said last week, has a, a theoretical reality and a practical reality. The theoretical reality is that God in eternity past did decree a people that he would set aside to himself. And by definition, from his perspective, they are justified because he is going to, he is going to bring these people to himself in glory. Okay, so from outside of time and space, it's as though the decree of God consists of everything that God purposed and intended all the way through until it is accomplished. And so from God's perspective in eternity past, those that he decreed to be elect, he decreed to justify. So they were justified, let's put that in quotes, if you will, before the foundation of the world. But... From our perspective, in time and space, that justification does not come to us until we personally come to faith in Christ. We come to faith in Christ, and we are justified uh, when we make that confession of faith, when we put down our self-righteousness, recognize our sin, become repentant men to come to the cross and come and receive Christ Jesus. That is our moment of justification. So the confession writers here are wanting to make sure that we don't make the mistake of thinking that just because a person is elect by God in eternity past, that it doesn't really matter what happens to them in time and space. Oh, it absolutely matters. Because as we've said many times, right, God is not only the author of the ends, he is also the author of the means, to get from this point to this point. And so God has purposed in his decree the means that those who will be justified will be justified by their faith, justified by faith in Christ. Okay, so the confession writers are wanting to make sure that we don't get this mistaken idea that, well, you know, I'm a believer and my wife is a believer and we have some children, so we just assume that they're justified as well and carry on. Okay, no, that would be a mistake. A man is justified on the basis of his faith in Christ. Now, we recognize fully that that faith is a gift from God, the ability to turn is a gift from God, the work of regeneration is a gift of God, and all those sorts of things. But that doesn't, that doesn't negate the reality that we are participating in it. Because God has decreed that we do. We participate in it. We, are, we, are, we have a part in it. We believe. I mean, you can't read the New Testament without coming to the conclusion that we are to believe something, right? I mean, it's obvious. You must believe. You must believe. You must believe. It's all over the pages of the New Testament. So it's obvious that God, in his decree to elect, to elect and justify, is expecting his elect to come to faith and to believe and to respond. But he's purposing that. And he's even, you might say, as Ephesians 2 says, giving us the gift of faith. We still believe, we still have faith. It's a gift from God, but we do have that part. Now, the reason why we make the distinction that that is not a work on our part is because no man can do that without the express work of God in his life. And so it is not true to say that, well, faith is just 
you know, our part in the process, as the synergist likes to say. We would say, no, we participate in what it is that God is doing in the sense that we also are believing, but it is fundamentally a work of God through that entire process. It's almost the same way of saying that sanctification is a work of the Spirit, but we are working in that process. We are shunning sin and turning from evil and choosing the right path. So there's a sense in which it is a work of God from beginning to end, and we are working with God, but you could better say it that God is working through us. would be a better way to say that. The faith that we exhibit is the faith that God himself is exercising through us. We're believing, but we're believing because he is working through us to believe. You might say it, I'm, I'm not sure this is a, a, a very good analogy, it's, it's an interesting one, but we could almost say that our faith is really the moment that we come to understand what it is that God is doing in and through us. It's our moment of, oh, it's that wake-up call, if you will, that what God declared in eternity now comes to fruition through us. So we, it's, we are now able to understand and see, not perfectly, but as time goes by even more, okay? So the, the writers here in this paragraph are really trying to get away from this idea of, eh, you know, we really don't need to do anything. We don't need to preach the gospel, you know, we don't need to go out and try to find converts, and we don't need to, you know, we don't need to share the gospel and this sort of thing. Just let God do it. No, God is purposed that a man comes to faith, and the means by which he's done that is through the preaching of the gospel, Okay? which is going to be said again in the next paragraph, okay? And, and I think this is, this is a sort of the first sentence, is sort of a transition, so watch what they do here. Paragraph five. Goth doth, God, goth, goth, God doth, okay? God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. Okay, so... There's a sense in which the writers need to address something else, and that is, all right, if we are declared righteous by God, then that, what does that mean for living? Okay, so we've already, see, we've already sort of broached into the subject. What does it mean to live as a justified person? Does it imply that we are able to just come to Christ, believe the gospel, and then go away and do what we want? And the answer is no. That's a form of thinking that's become very popular in synergistic circles, but it wouldn't be true from a biblical perspective. So the writers want to make sure that we understand the connection of justification to the rest of our existence. So God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. The implication being what? That the justified continue to sin. Okay? So this is not a statement of one of two extremes. It is not a statement that it's irrelevant how we live on the one hand, nor is it the extreme on the other, that once you are justified, you're now sinless. Okay, Those two things are false assertions or assumptions surrounding the doctrine of justification. And you'd be surprised how many people have embraced those positions over the years, particularly the perfectionist one. A man is justified means that his state before God has changed 
such that he is now in right relationship with the Father. But that does not imply that he will not sin anymore. Now, it would be nice if that were true, wouldn't it? That would be really helpful if God were to have decreed that those who are justified would now live perfect sinless lives. That would be nice. And some of us long for that, right? We'd say, boy, wouldn't that be great? Don't have to worry about it anymore. Everything's hunky-dory. But that's not what God has purposed. God has purposed for us to continue to have to struggle with the realities of living in a fallen world and even having to continue to fight against the other side of our nature, which is the flesh. Now, if you read the New Testament, you notice that there's often a distinction made between the immortal and mortal aspects of human beings, the soul and or spirit, and then the flesh on the other side. The flesh being that part of us that continues in this world. Sometimes we might call that the physical nature, but I think it's more than that. I think it's more than just our bodies. It's, it's, that, it's, it's a great deal of us that was formed from the dust of the ground and even received the imago dei, and is, in a sense, still corrupt because we are still creatures made from the dust of the ground. And it's from that nature, then, that we continue to find ourselves being tempted and falling to the temptation. The big, fat theological term for this reality is... Thank you. A couple of guys back there really know what concupiscence is. Death. Glory. Glory. That's it. So the concupiscence of the flesh is the tendency of our earthly physical existence to continue to struggle with sin. So the justified man is made righteous in terms of his state, but not in terms of his practical reality of existence. It would be nice if those two things were the same, but they're not. The second part of that equation, the fleshly part of us, that perfection is still waiting for us. And we will become fully righteous outwardly, as we are now righteously inward, at the resurrection. When Christ calls our fleshly bodies from the ground gives to us a new body that is infused with that righteous soul that we possess now such that we become fully righteous inwardly and outwardly. So, justification is only dealing with the reality of our state before God, not our practical reality. So we must remember that. But here's what I would say to that. And this is, this is how I look at it. Maybe, maybe you don't, but this is how I would look at it. It would be, therefore, my desire as a man standing just before God, knowing from Scripture that God justifies those who come to him by faith, knowing that he has declared me to be righteous. It would be my desire, then, to live outwardly what I am 
inwardly. Or what we would call the pursuit of holiness. To live out the righteousness that I possess by virtue of God declaring me to be such in justification, by faith, in every aspect of my outward existence. Now, the good news is, is that our Heavenly Father has determined to actually uh, help us to do that. Now, we call that sanctification. Okay, We call that sanctification. Where the work of the Spirit is then, once a man is justified, to continue the work of regeneration. In the sense of not only regenerating the soul, to bring the soul into perfect holiness, but to also regenerate the outward, to bring us more and more into conformity with Christ. That's sanctification, and that continues from justification on into eternity. Now, I think part of the reason that this paragraph is written is because Catholics confuse justification and sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification and the doctrine of justification in Catholic circles are one and the same. That you are justified slash sanctified by your keeping of the sacramental system. You are infusing righteousness into yourself by virtue of keeping the sacraments, and that is sanctifying you, supposedly, uh, more and more into the image of Christ. That's how they would perceive it. They don't see a distinction between justification and sanctification. But the reformer stood against that position to say that cannot be true, because every man that's ever been justified continues to sin. And the Bible speaks of an ongoing process of sanctification. Again, I take you to Romans. After you get through Romans 1 to to 2 and a half, which is the nature of man, then you have the doctrine of justification in 3 and a half to 4. Then when you get to chapter 5, you have a transition in which the writer makes it clear, Paul makes it clear, that there was a change, okay, in the man who has been born again by the Spirit of God. He now stands righteous in the sight of God. And so as you go into chapter 6, Paul begins describing a new thing, which is a work of the Spirit, after the work of justification. 6, 7, and 8 are all clearly making reference to the doctrine of sanctification. So as Paul saw it, justification began the process of sanctification. There's a clear demarcation between the two. And so... Catholic, the Catholic idea of being infused with righteousness in order to get into heaven is denied by the Apostle, who declares that justification is entirely on the basis of faith, whereas our sanctification is an ongoing process of us working out our salvation. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion, right? He who began that work in you. He began that by your justification, continues on. So we will continue to sin. We will continue to struggle against sin. Now, we'll come back to the doctrine of sanctification because there's a chapter in this on sanctification. Uh, But for the moment, it's important to recognize that even the justified man will continue to sin. But the good news is they can never fall from the state of justification. Again, can you change your state by what you do? And the answer is no. 
if the fundamental presupposition is you can't change your nature from being a sinner to being a saint by virtue of your behavior, the opposite must also be true. You cannot change your nature from being a saint to being unrighteous again by virtue of your behavior. Now you say, well, what about those people that you know, abandon the Christian faith? What about them? And the answer is obvious. If you cannot change your state by what you do, then what they are doing is not changing their state because they were never justified in the first place. Oh, they may have faked it really well. And the New Testament is clear in a number of places, right? I mean, we looked at a few in 1 John, right? Where it's very possible for a person to pretend to be a Christian But in his soul, he's not really one at all. He's not really trusted in Christ. He's not been justified. And so our our contention is, the confession writer's contention is, is that once God declares an elect person by virtue of their regeneration and their faith to be justified, that cannot be undone. And the obvious point is, if God has declared it and done it, how can it be undone by anything that we do? Now, I realize that this spawns a great deal of question. Well, you know, what about this guy? What about that guy? What about me when I'm not feeling so good? Okay, okay, let's listen, listen to what it says, okay? They, they go on to make sure we get this, all right? And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's Get these words, fatherly displeasure. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you love your kids? Do you love them all the time? Are you ever displeased with them? Does that change their status because you are displeased with them? Do they stop being your children when they disobey? No. Okay. We take that for granted in the human condition, don't we? We look at our kids and go, you know what? I'm going to smack this thing. I still love him. But if he doesn't get in there and clean up that room like I told him to. Okay. It doesn't change their state. Yes, it changes our relationship for a moment. Right? in the sense that there's some displeasure between us, maybe even some hostility between us, right? But it doesn't change the fundamental state of relationship, right? The same is true here. If God is our Heavenly Father, and again, there's an entire chapter on the doctrine of adoption in this confession, which we'll get to, but if God the Father has declared us to be His own, declared us to be righteous, and he has declared that we will continue to live in this world, and he knows that we will continue to sin, then it must be reasonable that he, as our Father, would at times be displeased with us, but that doesn't change our status with him. Now, that's where we often go wrong. Okay, That's where we often go wrong. We think, well... uh, I, I, I've sinned grievously, so therefore I, 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 I can't be a child of God anymore. Therefore, I can't. I, I, I want to be, but I obviously I mustn't be. That's where you're making your mistake. You're missing 
the disconnect between displeasure and a change of status. Yes, we will grieve the Lord. We will grieve our Heavenly Father. We will sin and He will be grieved But these things, but that doesn't change the relationship that has taken place any more than your children failing to do what you tell them to do changes the relationship. That's why they use the word fatherly displeasure here. This isn't, we don't fall under, okay, notice they didn't say, yet they may by their sins fall under God's wrath again. Okay, they didn't say that. I know that's what we often think. And people who come to me and talk about, well, I'm just not assured that I'm a Christian. My first reaction is, you're missing the, the distinction between state and, and uh, you know, relationship. You're missing that. You're missing that point. I, so I bring them back to the state every time. That's what I go. I say, okay, listen to me. Are you trusting in Christ? Well, yeah. Do you believe that he died for you? Yes. Are you coming to Christ with an empty hand of faith? Well, of course then your problem is just God's displeasure. It's not your state. So stop basing your assurance of your eternal life on the basis of a few bits of displeasure on the part of God. See? See, our synergist friends can't make such a claim. See, they're forced to admit that, well, yeah, it's possible for me to lose my salvation. Why? Because, you see, it wasn't God's declaration at all that made them a Christian. It was their own. It was their own declaration of that. Or some pastor that popishly proclaimed him to be a Christian. I don't know where I heard that. I heard that years ago. Somebody said that, popishly proclaimed. But I love that. It's like a pope, you know, standing over. So, okay, I now declare you to be a Christian. Ta-da! Where does he get that power from? But we're, we're, not, we're not a Christian because of something that we do. This is why the synergist has no assurance, because he's forced to come back and say, yeah, I did it. Can I undo it? And maybe I just undid it. But if we understand the, the true biblical gospel that Paul puts before us in Romans, what we recognize is, no, wait a minute. If God has declared a man to be just, our sin cannot undo that. And that is the hope of our salvation. I mean, that, that's, that's why Jesus could say such profound things like, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And I will lose nothing. I will lose nothing. I mean, you can almost imagine Christ going, yep, Father's going to give me a bunch, but eh, I'm going to let a few slip through my fingers. What a ridiculous Christ that would be. Right? No. He's confident enough to actually say to people, I'm going to keep every single one that I have died for. And I'm going to die for them, and they're going to be justified, and I'm going to hold them fast. And I'm even going to, he says, raise them up on the last day. Who's he raising up? His elect. And when's he going to do that? Tomorrow? Well, let's hope it's tomorrow. But on the last day, right? So our assurance isn't found in our day-to-day success or failure. Our, our, Our assurance is found in what God has decreed and will accomplish. Our hope is in that, you see. So yes, we will sin, and yes, we may fall under the Father's displeasure. Okay, so what do we do about it? Go back to the local church, pray the prayer again, walk down the aisle, rededicate our life to Jesus, get in the baptistry again. Did you know that 40%, 40% of baptisms in the Southern Baptist Church are rebaptisms? That's a scary thing. Why? 
for this reason. Don't know if I did it right. Got to do it again. No, no. Here's what it says we do. And in that condition, they have not usually the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. It's a simple matter of doing exactly the same thing that you would want from your kids. When this one that I want to smack, right? How, do I, how does he get back into my good graces? He humbles himself, right? He confesses. Yep, I'm sorry, I did that. He begs pardon and renews his faith in repentance. And he's restored. And that's what we do with our Heavenly Father. It's simply a matter of us going to the Father and saying, yes, Lord, I did it. Yep, I did it. I confess it. I really don't want to, and I promise not to do that again. I know I promised that a thousand times, but you're a very forth. The good news is, is that a day for you is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. So one, pro- one promise can be a thousand, right? It's okay. We simply rest- are restored in our fellowship with him when we simply go to God with a sense of humility and say, yeah, I have sinned. It's that simple. I mean, why do you think we have the story of the prodigal son? What does it teach us? The father's waiting. Come on back. Now, I realize that was about Israel, but nonetheless, it has a practical application. Come. Come back. It's okay. I don't care where you've been. My love for you, this is God speaking, my love for you is so great that I'm willing to forgive you. But I'm not going to forgive you if you're just going to sit there and continue in your rebellion against me. Maybe we have a bigger issue in that case. So the writers want to be sure you understand that justification is a change of state in the eternal sense, meaning our souls have been made right, but we still got to work out life. We've still got to walk in this world full of temptations and devils, this world with devils filled, as Luther says. We've still got to walk through that world, right? But our Father in justifying us has opened the door for us to come to him. And the writers could have, at this point, gone back and said, you remember that chapter on Christ the Mediator that we just talked about? What do you think the Son is doing before the Father in the life of those that he died for? He sees me sin, right? He looks at me, he sees me sin. What do you think he's doing? He goes to the Father, if I might be very simplistic here. He goes to the Father and says, wait a minute, that one's mine. You gave that one to me. He's mine. And the Father looks at his Son and says, you're right, I gave you that one. Okay. I will accept your advocacy on his behalf. I'll accept your mediatorial work on his behalf, right? We have an advocate for us that's not just advocating for us when we die. He's advocating for us every minute of every day as those that have been justified before the Father. You might say we have a, we have a much greater legal team at the throne of heaven than Morgan and Morgan, okay? There it is. He is advocating for us. Okay? So, if you get to that point in your life where you're thinking, I wonder, you know, about these things, get out your confession and go read this chapter, particularly paragraph 5. 
Yes, we will sin. It is inevitable. But our Father wishes to forgive us because he loves his Son so immensely. Which leads to verse, paragraph 6. Now, I, I looked at this briefly as a part of paragraph 4 uh, last week, but let me just, let's just spend a little more time in it. The other thing that the confession writers want to be clear about is that God operates in terms of his decree singularly in human history. His decree has determined that he justifies the elect regardless of when they live. Okay, that was paragraph four, right? God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. Okay, so God has purposed all the elect. Now, the natural question is, well, what about the elect before Jesus, right? What about all the people that died before Jesus? This is, I don't know why this has always been so confusing for Christians. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Really, seriously, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, well, what about all those that died before Jesus? They didn't know the name of Jesus. How could they pray the prayer and say, in Jesus' name, when they prayed the prayer? Okay, you've missed the point. The, 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 the issue is not whether or not one can purposely, let me rephrase it. The issue is not whether or not one knows exactly how God is going to fulfill his purposes in this world. Okay? Because as you rightly know, the scriptures lay out a timeline of human history that is progressively greater in terms of the revelation that comes. How much did Abraham know of the issue of Trinitarianism in his day? Answer, zippity-doo-dah. Does that mean that he couldn't be saved because he didn't know there was a trinity in the Bible? No. Obviously, God's revelation grows over time. And therefore, the people of any particular time will be responsible under the revelation they have been given. Whatever that might be in that particular time. What revelation did Job have? As we've rightly pointed out, right? No scriptural revelation... Hundreds of years before Israel was a nation and thousands of years before the Christ would come. But he was responsible in his day to believe what he did know in that day. Now, the difference between Abraham and us 2,000 years before Christ and 2,000 years afterwards is we know a lot. In fact, we know it all. This generation now has a fully developed scripture and the, exist, and, and the presence of the Spirit of God, which I believe is also present in Job's day, but with the presence of the Spirit of God working through the Scriptures to give to us much, much more than Abraham or Job ever had, which means, by definition, we are without excuse. Okay? Because we have it all right there in front of us. Abraham can at least be excused of the fact that he didn't have the knowledge of the history of Israel and the coming of the Christ and the giving of the New Testament, the the church and so on. He didn't have those things. We are without excuse. So really the question should be, why are the people today not believing? Right? shouldn't matter what happened to Abraham. It should be us. But that's that's another story. But here's the thing. Okay, so in other words, 
If God's decree to justify a people in time, He justifies them under the parameters of what it is they knew at that time. But the method, the means by which God justifies a man remains the same from Adam to the last elect person on the planet. Faith in what God has said. If God has said two words, believe it, and you'll be justified. If God has said a billion words, believe it, and you will be justified. The justification of saints in the Old Testament and the justification of saints in the New Testament is identical. There is no difference, okay? Now, I realize that there are a whole lot of people running around today carrying, formerly carrying Schofield reference Bibles, who have come to believe that, well, God just works differently in different ages because, well, you know, there was no Scripture in the the Old Testament days, and so God obviously had to work differently in those days. That was the essence, by the way, of Schofield's theology. Okay, God has to work differently because, obviously, those people didn't know about Jesus. So, because I'm a synergist and because I believe I have to know in order to believe that I'm going to have to do something unique with theology as I work my way backwards in time. Again, notice how the synergist ties himself up in knots and throws himself off a cliff, theologically speaking. But if you step back from Scripture, you recognize, no, wait a minute, there's a consistent plan that God justifies men on the basis of what knowledge he gives them and whether or not they believe it. For Abraham, all he knew was one promise. Well, two promises, but one, two promises together. I'm going to give you all this land that you're walking around on, and I'm going to give it to you through a nation that's going to come through this child that you had miraculously through Sarah. Those are the two promises he had. That was it. And God even walked through the smoking, you know, as a smoking pot through it and said, okay, I'm going to make sure that this happens. Then God comes along and says, okay, take that child and bring him up the mountain and kill him. Sacrifice him to me. And Abraham says, okay. I still have the two promises. So he goes up the mountain to do what it was that God told him to do, even to the point of raising the knife to kill the child when God says, stop. I'll give you another way to sacrifice, but what's the point of it? The point of it is that Abraham believed what God said, and it was counted as righteousness. That is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4. Abraham is the quintessential man of justification because he believed what he knew in his day. Justification is not on the basis of the breadth of your knowledge. Justification is on the basis of what God has made known to you. You believe it. I'll put it like this. Maybe this is my own personal experience. Maybe you would, some of you would uh, appreciate it. When I came to faith in Christ at the age of 20, I knew zip about the Bible. I'd never read it. I knew zip about the Christian faith or theology or doctrine. Never heard any of that growing up. None. The only thing I knew was that, number one, I was a sinner, and number two, Jesus died to pay for my sins. That's all I knew. And that was enough. I believed it. This is why Romans 10, 18 is so obvious. It's the most simplistic gospel message. If you will believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What more do you need? 
You believe the little revelation that is given to you, and that's enough to justify you, you see? So the question about how were Old Testament saints justified versus New Testament saints was answered centuries ago. But the sinner just struggles with it because it's like, well, we've got to have some explanation of, you know, you've got to know about Jesus in order to, uh, you know, be saved. And so if you don't know about Jesus, then how are you going to be saved? Now, you might, add, you might say, well, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, preacher, I got a question. The question would be, well, what about the guy living in the deepest part of Africa that's never heard the gospel? What do we do about him? Okay, what do we do about that guy? And I would say, my rules still apply. We have the totality of the revelation on this planet at this time. It's been made known. Right? It's here. The world is filled with Bibles, and the world is filled with Bible preachers, and the name of Jesus is known throughout the world. So, people use it as a gotcha question, but it's not a gotcha question, because the answer is simple. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is there. It's out there in the world. And if there's a guy living in the deepest, darkest part of Africa that's never heard about Jesus in the day that Jesus has been made known, then it's clear that God has not set that man aside to hear that message and believe. What's your problem? Now, the synergist says, oh, but everybody has to hear, you see. You see, the whole world, you see, it's not fair that some people would die without ever hearing the word. And I would say, really? Where's that written? Where's that written? Does, does God owe any of us the message anywhere? Could God have changed the history of the world such that the West did not become Christian, but the East did, and we're now the ones living in deep, dark paganism and not heard about Jesus? We could be that. God could have done that. See, the, 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 these arguments are what we call straw men. They build them up, they're false, knock them down, and think they've won the case. Well, no. We live in a day in which no man is without excuse. Okay, we're without excuse. We live in a world where the gospel has been fully preached. Now, yes, it may not have gone out to the whole wide world yet, but that's God's providence and sovereignty. He can do as he wills. And so the method of justification doesn't change just because there are certain exceptions, quote-unquote, to the clause. And that's what people try to do then. They say, well, look, okay then. I mean, Pope Francis did this not too long ago when he said, well... I realized that, you know, the, the guy in the deepest, darkest jungles who never heard the gospel, you know, he, he might be saved by his good morality. I mean, he actually didn't say it like that, but he said it pretty close to that. He threw the in 2,000 years of the Christian gospel under the bus. He's been really good at it lately, by the way. But apparently last week he endorsed same-sex marriages. Did you know that? Yeah. So we say, wait a minute, step back and think about this for a second. God has decreed that a man is justified before him on the basis of his faith in what God has said. In our day, God has said a lot. In Abraham's day, he said very little. But either way, man is justified on the basis of his trust in what it is that God has said. So that's why the writers say that the justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one at the, and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Justification is by faith alone in what God has made known. 
to us. And if he has made known to us the fullness of the gospel as in our day, believe it and you'll be justified. If you're living in Abraham's or Job's day, believe what you have and you will be justified. So justification, as I said, is a central topic to the gospel. It's very important for us to get this doctrine straight. Otherwise, your gospel goes wrong. Okay? Your gospel goes wrong. I think one of the primary problems with synergism is they don't understand justification. So here is how we wrote it into our statement of faith as Grace Fellowship. This is a section of justification under the doctrine of salvation. We teach that justification before God is an act of God by which He declares righteous those who, through faith in Christ, repent of their sins and confess Him as sovereign Lord. Simple enough. Come before Him, confess. Yeah, you've revealed to me I'm a sinner. Okay, now I know that. I believe that, and I confess him as sovereign Lord. This righteousness is a part, is a part, one word, a part, not a part. It is a part from any virtue or work of man. It's not something we do. There's no virtue in us. There's no work in us that God looks at us and says, okay, uh, yeah, that guy. And involves the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Sometimes we refer to that as the great transaction. A great transaction took place where our sin was imputed to Christ and he took it to the cross and his righteousness was imputed to us and we now bear it in ourselves. The active obedience is the righteousness imputed to us. The passive obedience is our sin imputed to him. The great transaction between uh, in, in justification of where God takes our, righteous, our unrighteousness and gives it to Christ and gives Christ's righteousness to us, such that when he looks upon us, he now sees us with the righteousness of Christ. Again, he doesn't see our righteousness. He sees an alien righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus upon us. By this means, God is enabled to be, quote, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, unquote, Romans 3, 26. God is able to be just on the one hand because he satisfies all that is required under his law. He does not wink at our sin. He doesn't just brush it off. He deals with it. And he deals with it by nailing it to a cross. And yet at the same time, he's able to be just. He's able to be the justifier. He's able to be merciful and grant justice, I'm sorry, righteousness to us. So our statement of justification is simply a summary of what you see in the confession. Again, this is a doctrine you should know. I mean, you should know like the back of your hand, really. This is a doctrine you should know. I mean, it should be, you should be able to describe it, define it, defend it uh, to those around you, especially to your family, to your children, because this is what it means. This is what Christianity is about. God is just. Sin must be dealt with. But he's also the justifier. He's found a way, declared a way, not by accident, declared a way in which sinners 
can be righteous in his sight. That's good news, isn't it? That's why they call it the gospel. Questions? Right. 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 I I I I have to believe. Again, I don't have scriptural proof of this, but there's a logic here that when Adam watched God kill animals in order to put skins on him, that Adam must have understood the significance of that act, the shedding of blood. Death came for the first time into the world. And Adam heard the bleeding of those sheep. And I'm convinced they were sheep. Heard the bleeding of those sheep as they were dying. And that is the... Adam saw the consequences of his actions and told his sons, it is through this that God has covered us. And so to be right with him, we need to have shed blood. The life is in the blood, and so we need to... Abraham, same way. Right. Take your son. Correct. A higher revelation of that. Right. And it's also, of course, obviously picturesque of God giving his own son and not stopping the knife from coming down. Yeah. But you're right. It's, it's a point that revelation comes in greater and greater measure as time goes by. But whatever light men have in their generation. It is that light that they need to say, oh, I understand. And God is not, I mean, you know, to say that there was no revelation in Job's time, okay, that, that's kind of a hyperbole, because there was light. As I said a couple of times, there was the natural revelation around us that even the world itself screams out for the reality that we are sinners and the reality there is a God. And the re- I mean, Paul's argument in Romans 1. Even the creation tells us we should be worshiping God. So Job knew that at a minimum, even if there was no other scriptural revelation given. But men are going to be held accountable for what they did with the revelation they were given. Including all those Amorites that lived in Canaan. They knew, but they ignored. And their consciences were seared. Other questions? So, Teach your children justification by faith. Help them to understand what it means to be right with God by believing the promises of God. And you'll have gone a long ways to helping them understand the gospel.